Today's Words and Nerds podcast is sponsored by The Accomplice by Steve Kavanagh. If you were married to a serial killer, would you know? Steve Kavanagh's follow-up to the best-selling 13, 50-50 and The Devil's Advocate is his twistiest yet. The Sandman serial killings have been solved. Daniel Miller murdered 14 people before he vanished. His wife Carrie now faces trial as his accomplice. The FBI, the district attorney, the media and everyone in America believe she knew and helped cover up her husband's crimes. The only thing between a life in jail or free Freedom is Eddie Flynn and his team. Steve Kavanagh is the master of the twist and The Accomplice will keep you guessing right to the last page. The Accomplice is released in Australia on the 26th of July. Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Danny V. From all of us in the writing community, we just think you're amazing because you put your heart and soul into everything you talk about on this amazing show. The podcast has over 50,000 listeners every month. I love coming on your show and I love talking about it. Oh my God, I finally get to speak about it. Talk about all the things that I've been with by myself for so long. I mean, you provide that opportunity to so many of us and, you know, always are an amazing host. We chat about books, the writing process and how literature has the power to change the world. But most of all, we have real conversations and we have a laugh. I'm Uh, feeling sick. Thanks for being here and sharing the journey. Kioran, g'day. My name's Craig Sisterson and welcome to Kiwi Craig's World of Crime. This is a spin-off series from the marvellous Words and Nerds podcast, usually hosted by the brilliant Danny V. Each episode of Kiwi Craig's World of Crime, I'm going to be bringing you three or four amazing authors from all over the world. We're looking at crime globally because all of us wherever we are in the world love stories of murder mystery and mayhem so each panel each time is going to be consisting of some authors from different countries and different continents and today oh boy do i have an amazing panel for you today today we're doing daggers drawn where we have four authors who've all recently been shortlisted for the prestigious cwa daggers in the uk So it's my grand pleasure to welcome Tarek Ashkenani, who's an Edinburgh solicitor and debut author of Welcome to Cooper, which has been shortlisted for the John Creasy New Blood Dagger for debut novels. We also have with us the marvellous Simona Buchholz, the number one best-selling German author who is shortlisted for the crime fiction and translation dagger for her book, Hotel Cartagena. We also have from closer to home for most of you listening, Jacqueline Bublitz from New, New Plymouth author whose debut novel Before You Knew My Name has been shortlisted for the CWA Gold Dagger. And last but definitely not least, we have one of the queens of crime fiction, the legendary Laura Lipman, Baltimore author of the Tess Monaghan series and a number of standalones. Her latest novel, Dream Girl, has been shortlisted for the CWA Ian Fleming Steel Dagger for best thrillers. So welcome to you all. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Cool. I thought just to start off with, we could allow the listeners to get a little bit of a taste of your books that have been shortlisted for these prestigious awards, which will be given out in a few weeks' time in London. And um, Tarek, perhaps you'd like to start us off what was kind of the acorn for Welcome to Cooper? Was it the character who goes to the small west um, town? Was it the US Midwest setting that drew you into it? Or did you have some idea of an event or a premise? Where did Welcome to Cooper start for you as a debut author? 
So for me, it actually started from a writing group that I was I was a um, I was in, and each week we would get a kind of writing prompt for a short story, and you had to write it for the next kind of week. And it was amazing because it gave me a deadline to write. And if I realized if I don't have any kind of kind of deadline, I just don't write. So I was having that kind of fire was fantastic. Um, and uh, it was a crime theme that week and it had to be like a cop story, a de- detective story. And I knew as soon as that was the theme this week, I was like, this is my theme. This is the kind of stuff that I always love to read. And uh, I've always really drawn to American fiction, crime fiction, stuff like Mary of Town, True Detective, Seven, um, even the stuff, the British crime that I watched, like Luther or Line of Duty, it's quite Americanized. It's quite fast paced and uh, plot heavy. It's not, uh, it's not really, I feel a lot of British crime is quite like slower paced. I really quite like that kind of fast paced American stuff. Um, and so that was the, the kind of, that's where it all came from essentially. And, uh, and I knew I wanted to set it away from a, the usual hotspot that you always get in like New York and LA. Um, and I love the idea of a small town because you can you can bend the rules more in a small town. You know, the cops are more morally ambiguous. You can hide secrets. There's something about, I find quite creepy about these big cornfields in the dark next to these quiet houses. And I thought it was just a perfect setting for like a murder. So I thought if I could have that kind of seven creepy serial killer feel in this small town, that was my, that, I, I just knew straight away that was my, that, 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 that was my end to the story. Yeah, fantastic. It's an explosive debut novel, guys. You definitely want to go check it out. Welcome to Cooper. It's published by Thomas and Mercer. And um, interestingly, you say that uh, more morally ambiguous for the cops in the small town, because I think the rest of the panel may have agreed with you on most of what you say, but considering all three of them set their books in big cities, and there's plenty of moral ambiguity (laughs) in a lot of their books as well. And I think Laura perhaps could tell us a lot about moral ambiguity in urban uh, policing in, in, in the United States. <laughs> but we perhaps won't get into that because it'll take up our entire session. But um, Jacqueline, I mean, you're kind of the opposite to Tarek in that you actually decided to go to the big city. You went to the Big Apple. Um, you're kind of a, a smaller town or smaller city in New Zealand girl yourself, but you've gone to one of the biggest and most famous cities in the world with New York and your debut. What made you decide to set it there? And was it the setting or was it the characters um, or the underlying plot of Before You Knew My Name that kind of started things for you? Yeah, definitely. Um, it was the um, the characters. It was this notion of what would it be like um, to be that jogger who um, who finds the or the dog walker who who finds the dead body. You know that mm. that one line that's represented in all these news stories um, when something breaks around. Um, you know, and missing missing girl. Like, what would it be like to um, be the one? And when she's found, you're the person who found her. New York for me was really self serving, and um, and I always remind people nobody was waiting for this book. I wasn't. Um, I had. Um, I wasn't taking a writing class. I was. I didn't. I wasn't agented. Um, I was. Um, I wanted to live in New York. I just have to be <laughs> that's as honest as I can get. I wanted to live in New York. I had a. Um, a brief window of time, um, mostly to do with finances, where I might be able to take what other people would use as a house deposit um, and use it to live in, in one of the most expensive uh, cities in the world um, and you know, be a writer or what I imagined a writer um, would, would have been like an Ernest Hemingway in the past, like doing nothing but absorbing life and drinking far too much and, you know, getting very kind of 
um, deep and meaningful about the world. And I went to New York and instead I just saw like a Broadway musical every night and wandered around and bought pretty dresses and it wasn't at all dark and deep and, and um, I should have gone to the woods. Um, but the, yeah, the, Before You Knew My Name uh, came to me because I was living in Melbourne at the time and a, a young woman... Renee Lau was murdered just down the road from me in a very popular park on a very busy street, like main thoroughfare into the central business district of, of Melbourne. And she was murdered on her way to work one morning. And then a jogger running, uh, it's called the Tan, it's where we would all run, you know, run off our hangovers on the weekend um, in this park, a jogger had found her body. And so for the first time, not only was I identifying with, um, you know, to some degree with this poor young woman and what had happened to her, I was thinking, what would it have been like to, to have been the person who came across her, her clearly very traumatized um, body, um, you know, like five, six in the morning um, in Melbourne. So that's where that came from. And then New York was, I needed a place that would um, work for, for this idea of both like anonymity and connection, a place where you could both disappear and be found. And I think it exists in so much popular culture as that place, the place you go to make it, to meet people, um, but also a place that you can really get lost and, and fall through the cracks in a way you wouldn't in a small town, I don't think. You wouldn't necessarily have that anonymity. Um, and certainly I wasn't ready to um, tackle a, a New Zealand story. It didn't feel like a New Zealand story, which is a whole other conversation we can have one day. Yeah, I mean, we do have, unfortunately, too many missing girls, real life stories in New Zealand, as most countries do. But as you say, it's a different type of story. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating look at those kind of two characters that are often the one line or the one thing in a TV show or a book where it's the victim whose body is found at the, at the start and kickstarts the investigation for the hero cops or the hero amateur sleuths. And then also, like you say, the person who finds the body. I, I've just been re-watching some different cop shows during the pandemic and the amount of times, you know, they, they chat to the person who found the body very briefly at the start and then they go off on with their life. But they, it must be an incredibly traumatising thing to, to have that happen and it's kind of just brushed away as, as the cops go and go on the search for the killer. Um, so it's really fascinating and I love the way that your book kind of upturns that kind of pretty girl's trope or pretty dead girl dead girls trope as well and, and kind of looks at that we can talk more about that soon but interesting you talk about being a writer in a big city because Laura with Dream Girl you kind of take us deep into the world of this kind of literary author who's uh, kind of in Baltimore but uh, um and stuff but it, you want to tell us a little bit about Dream Girl and where that came from was that was Jerry the start of it or was it the concept of the it's kind of almost misery-esque um without giving too much away. So. Concepts was, um, there were two things going on. One is I had just come off of writing a book, Lady in the Lake, that had two major POVs and 20 one-off chapters mm. of POV that you never, so it was like, it was this, there were a lot of people in my head and it felt very big and very broad and it was historical and I like to change it up. So I was like, I wanna write something super claustrophobic um what i would say is that i think one of the scariest places to be is inside a writer's mind i'm going to assume everyone on the panel agrees with that and i it was like over the holidays i watched the movie a quiet place and i've always felt that a lot of horror takes place in the wilderness or in remote areas isolated areas and i just had this hunch 
that for all of social media and for all of our tech, we were all a lot more isolated than we realized. <laughs> Bear in mind, this is 2018. <laughs> like, and that we were more alone inside our homes than we ever knew and that it was possible to look out your windows and see people and see a city that was moving and going forward, but not to be able to talk to anyone in it or to reach out to anyone if you felt you were in jeopardy. And that's sort of where it started. Mm. And obviously misery was an influence. I, I wanted to sort of take it to the next level where this guy is trapped in his own apartment, but none of the people he, he's having contact with would describe themselves as fans. They're not even readers for the most part or so it seems so i really i just wanted that claustrophobic feel of somebody's stuck in his own head in his own apartment and then someone starts calling him claiming to be the inspiration for his most famous character and he knows there is no such person and no one else ever hears the calls and no one else thinks this is going on and so just you know deeper and deeper into how weird a writer's mind is and what's real what's not and yeah that pretty much covers it you know and it was I was writing I finished it in June 2020 and it was always my hope that it would just sort of take place in some unnamed now-ish time but it had to immediately become a novel that was happening before the pandemic you know it just said it had to you had to have that really clear line of this is something that's happening in 2019. So that was that was the whole of it. It was interesting, though, because most of us who read it, read it during the pandemic, because that's when <laughs> it came out. And so as readers, I know that when I got a chance to read it early, and it's a brilliant, brilliant book, go grab it, listeners, um, if you haven't already. And you also want to grab Lady in the Lake, the prior book that Laura talked about, which is another really good take on the pretty dead girls trope as well, just to say, <laughs> just quietly. Um, but yeah, that sense of claustrophobia, and we were all dealing with that kind of isolation in our own homes in the early days of the pandemic when most places around the world were dealing with some sort of lockdown and stuff like that. So it was a really interesting juxtaposition there as yeah. well. So, And Simona, um, your book that has been shortlisted, Hotel Cartagena, which is, I believe, if I've got it right, your ninth Chastity Riley novel starring your Hamburg prosecutor. It's the fourth, I believe, that's translated into English but there were five that haven't been translated into English, I think. So it's, it's the ninth <laughs> chest, it's the ninth book and a really stunning series. I've loved all of the ones that have been translated into English and I'm going to harass Simona to get the prior ones translated at some point <laughs> if we can. But um, this is an interesting book. Uh, from my experience as a reader, I remember I was reading it last year and I think I tweeted to you about this, Simona, because I actually started reading it on a night which may have either been uh, the birthday or the anniversary of someone who you actually dedicated the book to. And I hadn't realised. And then I opened the book and you dedicated it to this very famous actor. And as you read the setup of the book, where there's a hostage situation on a dockside Hamburg hotel where armed men take over a high-rise hotel. You're, there's clearly some love for a particularly great <laughs> Christmas movie that we all love called Die Hard coming on there. And so you actually, you actually dedicated the book to Alan Rickman. And for me, it was a bizarre situation because I'd just been reading 
scrolling Twitter and there was all this Alan Rickman stuff. It was either the anniversary of his death or it might have been his birthday. So people were posting a lot of stuff. And then I'm like, oh, I'm going to read Simona's new book. <laughs> and I open it up. <laughs> and then literally the first thing I see is like, it's dedicated to Alan Rickman. And I'm like, this is just a weird moment. But can you tell us a little bit about where Hotel Cartagena came from? Because as I say, this is the ninth in your series. So you're coming up with new stories for an ongoing character. So what was the acorn for this and taking chastity in some different directions? Uh, well, you know, you already mentioned Die Hard. And um, it was maybe when I was in my 20s, uh, one night, girls night out, my besties had to literally pull me out of a tattoo studio because I was um, up for needling Bruce Willis right here over my breasts because I really loved, I still love them. I'm a big, big Bruce Willis fan. I've always been. And yeah, they had to pull me out and said, no, don't stop, please don't. So Bruce Willis, uh, for me as a girl who grew up in the 80s and 90s, is a massive hero. And I always, you know, when you're writing a series, um, the prequel series is not translated to English, but the second part of the series is translated. So I was in book number nine, as you already mentioned, and you always have to kind of create not only a new case, I think, but a whole new novel to keep it exciting for, for the readers, but also for the writer. And um, the, the, my point in this story was to, to see how all these characters, my whole ensemble um, is, is dealing with all the damages I have given them over the years. And um, if you want to set up a situa situation like this where like everyone just shows <laughs> the wounds and the bleeding parts of the heart, um, just stick, put them together in a room and lock it. So that's the easiest way to, 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 to get this out. And um, so with my fandom of Bruce Willis, I just put that together. And um, as I mostly would say it's I mostly write noir so it's a bit slow it's not so there are not so many turning points it's not a classic thriller um I would describe this thing as a slow motion chamber play die hard um and it was a lot of fun writing it because I had to spend a lot of nights in this luxury hotel here at the harbor side <laughs> and to just stroll through the through the rooms and the bar and everything. It was it was fun. It was fun researching and writing it. Well, you also it's a slightly different one for you in the series because Chastity, who's the central figure, who's a Hamburg prosecutor in Germany, the prosecutors work incredibly closely with the police, so she actually goes along to the crime scenes right from the start and things like that, which may seem unusual to some people in other countries reading about. But um, you also, about half or maybe slightly less than half of the book actually takes place historically in Latin America with a series of events that lead up to, as we work out, that lead up to the shooting. And so that was a bit of a change for you setting the book there. I imagine you didn't do quite as much research in terms of various powders being taken in, in Latin America as the characters in that section of the book. but. <laughs> Yeah, that, that would have been too expensive uh, for me to go to Latin America. But um, I, I, I have a friend who's, who's uh, kind of working in the drug investigation force since for already 
30 years and um, he was kind of coaching me coaching me through this um, Latin American cocaine stuff that was very helpful. It's been really interesting listening to all four of you who are all like really good crime writers that everyone should check out at different stages of your careers. But like so many people I talk to from kind of outside crime fiction often talk about how crime fiction is all about page turning and plots, like it's the Agatha Christie or Naya Marsh puzzles or things like that. But my experience from all of my reading is so much character and setting is important. And for each of you, it was either a character thing or a setting or a sense of atmosphere of the place and the people that was kind of what was most important to you with starting your book. And so perhaps we could dive a little bit more into that of the importance of character and setting in crime fiction, because obviously we need the page turning plots for people to keep turning the page. But I've always found that crime fiction is so much more than the plot and whether you've got a series character like Laura you had Tess Monaghan early on you've got a dozen books of hers and Simona you've got Chastity Riley and things like that but you know whether you've got a series character where you're meeting them for more than one book over and over so you can go in a lot of different ways than a single book or whether I mean and and Tarek, you've, you've done something interesting because your second book's recently come out. And it's, am I right? Because I haven't read the second one yet, but it's set in the same place, but it actually has a different central character. So you're kind of, the setting is what's the continuance for you, not the central hero. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I kind of got to the end of the book one and it wraps up in a kind of, in a way that I was like, I'm not sure how I would carry this on to a traditional sequel. And and I thought, well, well I, I knew I wanted to have some kind of connection and, so I thought, well, what, what if I jump forward 30 years in, in the past and jump back, sorry, 30 years in the past? And and I, I love the idea of of the town, town of Cooper being this kind of hub of storytelling where you've got this small town full of, full of corruption, full of just like nasty crime with sparks of hopefulness kind of going through it. And then I could, I could dive into the history of the town itself, maybe see some of the politicians behind it, you know, kind of show a different side to the town that I'd shown in, in, in book one. And also there was a character... Um, Joe, who's a he's a supporting character in the first book, and he's and he's already set in stone really by the time we we see him. He's kind of bent cop, corrupt. You know, he works for bad guys, etc. And I thought well, it'd be quite nice just to go back and see how that happened. So I thought I could I, I could go back and I could I could set him up as a good cop to start with and see his fall over time, perhaps how he gets involved in it. And also, I could show the kind of birth birth of Cooper and kind of show the. The, the rise of that as a character because I definitely saw the town as a character as much of, of a character as the actual people uh, in in the book for sure mm. and was that the case for you Jacqueline as well like yours is a, a standalone I'm, I'm not imagining it's going to kick start into a series like perhaps you can tell us differently um but uh, like whereas New York was very much a character to you in the book as well yeah, I mean, and I'm I'm super jealous of um, you all for being able to um, um, write and keep your characters or, or move certain characters through into other stories because I could write um, Ellis Lee every day of my life. She was the easiest character. Uh, once she came to me, I like I feel like I know her, but um, and she lets everyone know right from the first page she's dead. So it would be a different kind of. <laughs> I would be moving into a different kind of realm if I, you know, had a, a series with, with her as the narrator. Um, New York, yeah, New York as, as a character. Um, 
I guess as a writer now, New York has served her purpose in terms of what I was trying to achieve, which was, and, and interestingly, I mean, I think a lot about how much, you know, the pandemic has changed things around this idea of, and especially for, for Kiwis and, and Australians, like packing up and going overseas for your, what we call the OE. Um, and, you know, is it as easy now? Is it is, is something changed? Is there more, are there more interesting stories to tell about where we go and how we reinvent ourselves in a world that suddenly got really small? Um, so I am sort of begrudgingly done with um, New York as a, a character, perhaps not as a setting, but as a sort of um, sort of rich character, and also unfortunately done um, with Alice Lee. But what I'm doing. Um, or trying to do with um, my work moving forward is setting it all in that same uh, four month period so that I know <laughs> at least they all live in the same universe. Um, and that the, you know, maybe I can sneakily have a line here or there that might reference, um, you know, other, you know, just as a little wink and nod to the, to the reader. Some people love, love that. I love that. Yeah. Um, and, but yeah, it's, I miss, um, I miss New York, I miss Alice Lee, but I also miss the world, apart from the, obviously, the terrible crime, the murder and so forth. I miss the world that I was able to create because I don't think we actually live in that world um, at the moment. Yeah, that's very true. And like you, Joe Gorn, I actually really like when authors who've got multiple books kind of have them overlapping. I love the idea of what Tarek's doing with his. I'm so excited about yeah. reading reading the second book now, <laughs> as if I wasn't enough already. Um, there's also a New Zealand author, Paul Cleave. I love how he's got like four books with one main cop slash private eye slash cop character who bounces in and out of the police force. But then he's got another two books with a serial killer character, but they both pop up as minor supporting just brush past characters. So it's all the same world and a couple of his other standalones they'll refer to just something in a newspaper about like a serial killer or something so it's all happening in the same world and actually just it's just popped into my head because I read it over a year ago you did that to us a little bit Laura as well with your kind of most famous long-standing character Tess Monaghan who many people are, would be loving to see a new novel from but you gave us a you gave us a nice little cameo in Dreamgirl and you actually yeah she Jerry tries to hire her to be his private eye and she yeah. sort of gets a moment where she's like, I could never work for you. And yeah. she explains why. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting because I wrote a series, I started with a series, I loved the character and I thought I was really clever and I had her have a baby. Mm. And it's really been hard to write novels about a woman with a young child who has a dangerous job and to honor that and to be serious about it, but also still provide the excitement and suspense. I mean, how far will she go? And the last full book I wrote about her was specifically, I teach writing and sometimes I tell students, when you see a problem in your work, don't try to write around it. That'll create a hole that'll, it'll be a flaw that even if people don't know what it is, they'll always feel that there's something wrong. So instead run right at your problems. So I did this very intentional thing where I wrote about how does Tess balance work and marriage and having a young child and how does she stay safe? And, and then I haven't written a full novel about her since then. Um, it's actually my plan for my next novel to take a very minor character from the Tess Monahan novels and build a story around her where the working thesis that I floated past my US editor, UK editor and agents is, 
what if Miss Marple was kind of a cougar? <laughs> so, and they're all cool with that. They're like, yeah, we'll do that one. Because I've just been a year writing a book about the three most horrible people in the world. And I just have to spend time with somebody fun. So yeah, there's, there's this constant, to me, Baltimore is more or less the cornerstone that almost all of my books have. And yeah, I don't, yeah, Baltimore or it's far flung suburbs. And the characters are minor characters that move in and around. I mean, I already said this in our chat, but, and it's a very selfish way to be, but I've made it this far. So I guess I'm gonna keep going. The work has to be interesting to me first and foremost. If it's not, someone already said this, if it's not interesting to you, how is it gonna be interesting to anyone else? Right, that's what Simona said. And I just have to do whatever it takes to make me feel not only excited to sit down to work every day, but a little bit scared. Fear is a good motivator for me as in, I haven't done something like this before. I don't know if I can do it. And I've always said that the day that I sit down to write and I feel like super confident and I'm like, this is gonna be easy, that, that's when I'll probably know to quit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very true. The and risky writing. Yeah, yeah, writing from the writing on the edge, you know, was it? I, it's one of those cheesy sayings that you had on posters and stuff when you were growing up. And like Simona, I'm a child of the 80s slash 90s as well. But I remember one was, if you're not standing on the edge, you're taking up too much room. I think it's what it was, or something like that. So. I never knew that. One. There was, there was like it was. I think it was like on a no fear, like a surf T-shirt in Australia and New Zealand when in the nineties, you know, in the grunge era, you know, kind of Nirvana and Pearl Jam and all that kind of stuff. But Simona, I mean, you've like you said, you've got this central character Chastity, but you've very much got an ensemble cast around her and. You know, for you, how important is not just the central character, but all of the characters, that kind of ensemble, the, the world you're creating? Because as Tarek and Jacqueline and Laura have kind of said, it's, it's about the worlds you're creating, whether it's claustrophobic around a singular character or whether it's the setting and stuff. But for you, you have this kind of interesting ensemble cast who um, kind of make their way through all the books, um, not all of them in all of the books, but uh, <laughs> no spoilers, but, but, um, but, you know, that kind of go through and things like that. But um, for you, what keeps you interested in them and, and creating that world and using it again and again? Yeah, for me, the most interesting thing in life is uh, relationships. Hmm. So how do we, how do we relate? How do we to each other? How do we click? When we meet someone, do we click or do we just um, jump apart? Um, and what my interest in crime literature is, I think it's, um, I, like to, uh, I like to see the structures, the society structures, um, where they get dysfunctional. And then first they get dysfunctional, then they get violent, and then this, these violent structures are producing violence. So for me, that's the, the core of my crime writing. And, um, you know, the smallest structure is uh, people relating to each other. In families, in, in, in my novels, it's more like friendship. They're kind of family of choice because they're all alone and, and yeah, lonely, of course. Um, so that's the kind of um, kind of track I'm on, and the 
kind of train that's pulling me through all my stories. How do the relationships between all those people work and what, what can I learn in, this, in these relationships about the bigger structure they are living in? And um, I think it's always, for me, it's always, always exciting to find the crack in the structures. There's a crack in everything. That's where the light gets in, of course, but there's also a crack in everything and that's where the dark stuff gets in, um, where the problems get in. And um, yeah, I think it's kind of, I'm, I'm a structure nerd. We're in a nerd podcast, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. This is yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a total, I'm a total s structure nerd. I love structures, and I think for, to me it explains structures explain everything. They explain my personal life. They explain my my history, my roots, um, politics, everything we're doing, and so that that keeps me going in writing. Are, are you a plotter or a pantser, Simona? Like, do you plot out beforehand because like structure is important to you, or is it more just a concept about people and relationships but you still pants the novel sort of way. yeah I, I wouldn't say plotting but I'm developing a structure I'm developing in normally three parts because that's the slow way a structure uh, a story develops and um, in this in these parts I try to move around freely but um, I need a structure because I otherwise I, I just lose the overview and actually, for the, the other three of you as well, uh, that same question, I wrote an article recently for an Australian magazine about plotting versus pantsing and how whichever way gets you there, basically. But some very famous writers do very different things and from um, different crime writers I've talked to over the years. But for each of you, like, do you plot much beforehand, whether it's kind of the Jeffrey Diva kind of 100 pages of plot outline or just a few bullet points and stuff? Or do you kind of write your way into it? I believe Michael Conley talks about headlines at night he kind of knows vaguely where he wants to end up and he can see just in front of him like you're driving at night with the headlights kind of to get there that's something el doctoro said that writing a novel is like driving at night and you can only see about six feet ahead of you I, i'm a pantser I, I start with the main idea and i often know the one really big secret or like there's one big thing i know but i don't know and a big part of it is I know it, but how are my characters going to find out? So it's it's very much a process of following the characters into the story and seeing what happens. Yeah, Panzer. And Jacqueline, for yourself, for your first novel? Well, I, I mean, I'm a work in progress. I'm learning as I go, um, you know, working on my second novel and desperately wishing I was a plotter. Um, <laughs> but I'm not in any way, shape, or form. I mean, before you knew my name, had you know had, a, had a, a lovely concept I think but there was no plot to it for a very like for a really long time I didn't know what I was going to do um, with this idea around you know what would it be like to be the person who found the body um, I I'm learning that I see the end first um, that is um, sort of my lodestar, my place to, to get to, uh, and certainly with um, this the second book. And before you knew my name, before I even really knew who the characters were, I did see them in that last scene, in some version of that last scene. And then I had to work out, well, who are they? And 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 how do I, you know, how do I get everyone to that table, so to speak? 
Um, so not a plotter, wish I was, um, it would make the second book um, a lot easier, <laughs> a lot easier to wrangle. Uh, you know, I'm just a sponge as well, absorbing what the rest of you with more experience, much more experience can tell me. And Tarek, yourself, or you, did you give yourself a bit of an outline or did you kind of dive in and then revise later? Or? No, I'm, I'm definitely part of the pants pants party. I think I am. No We need T-shirts for the next time we're all in a, all in a festival Radical pencils. I love it. <laughs> we, should, we should all get pants party T-shirts for the next yeah. festival we're at and, and just get everyone looking at us strangely. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, Let's call our club the certain call club. Hmm. <laughs> just you hear the certain call and then you go <laughs> yeah. i do have to be careful over here in the uk because apparently the new zealand australian usage of pants is quite different to the uk usage of pants so it's um is it like a us uk thing is it i think a little bit like australia and new zealand as well because when you am i right Tarek, that when you say pants in the uk you often mean underwear is yeah, that... I would only I would only call pants underwear here. Yeah, it was where pants pants in New Zealand are like tra- <laughs> are like trousers. So you track pants, yeah. you know, like trousers. So if you say pants in New Zealand or Australia, you mean like outer trousers. You know, we should clarify. Of... We should clarify what we're wearing to the pants. Party before we turn up. Okay. Yeah, you might want to be clear on that. Or we just don't tell Tarek, and it could be a really interesting day for all of us. I wanted to touch briefly on, and it's kind of a random question, sorry, but what's it like for you guys to get shortlisted for an award like the Daggers? I mean, you know, I I don't imagine that you write to win awards, but at the same time, it's really nice to be recognised and to realise that it's connected with people who are deeply passionate about the crime genre, as most awards judges are. You know, they're huge aficionados, they're deeply passionate and well-read. So if you're connecting with people like that, and being shortlisted or longlisted for awards, let alone any wins or anything, but I think just being shortlisted for awards and that is remarkable. But what, what what's that like? I mean, Tarek and Jacqueline, what's that like for you kind of as first-time authors? D- does it mean something as the acknowledgement? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm just curious as to what it's like for you. So. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's like a kind of a kind of independent valid, valid verification, valid. What's the word looking for? Validation. validation. Validation is what I'm looking for. Um, it's that kind of independent validation that you've actually written something that's good, and you're so close to it. I think as a writer, and especially my first book, you know, I don't, I didn't have a clue if it was any good or not. By the end of it, it'd been edited so many times, and so many folk had read it, and with these notes, and and I was, uh, by the time it goes out, I was sick to death of it, and so it's, it's nice to kind of get that that kind of distance from it, and to be told, no, actually, you've you've done something that's that's recognised to be a good piece of work, and that is really nice, yeah. Yeah, and I keep, I think just time zones, I keep getting like a fright or a shock, like I'll be loose, like I will like open up my Twitter, maybe like five, six in the morning, and there'll, there'll be, you know, the, the few times that it's happened, and certainly with the daggers, you know, it was actually from you, Craig, a message, yeah. and I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not awake, yeah. I'm in Melbourne, I've had a late night with my mates singing couch, doing couch karaoke, what so what the hell is going on here? And so there's always this sort of out of body kind of moment um, and it's delicious. It's the best feeling. And then I usually cry and um, I'm, yeah, I'm usually on my own or yeah, in this case, I was you know sleeping on a, like a camp bed at a, at a mate's house um, in, in my first trip back to Melbourne with the daggers. And it's just, I don't, I, to be a debut author and to be embraced in particular by the, crime community when I'm sort of an accident 
from an accidental writer and then an accidental crime writer to boot and sort of to be welcomed into this um, um, incredibly supportive um, community um, is, um, yeah, we may be teary now, so I'm just going to stop, but I'm just really, really grateful and I don't think I'll ever get cynical about it. And Laura and Simona, you've, you know, you've already got some trophies on the mantelpiece, <laughs> various things and bestsellers and other things like that. What's it like for you kind of at this kind of stages of your career when you've got like a long backlist and that? Does it does it still give you like a wee bump when you see it and things like that? It's, it's lovely. And I think the thing I want to say is that people laugh at the cliche of it's an honor just to be nominated. But I actually think the shortlist is more meaningful than winning because being the victor, it's just sort of like convention demands there's a winner. Yeah. One horse has to get its nose over that finishing line slightly ahead of the others. And as someone who has sat on judging panels, mm. I, I know how in those cases in a judged prize, I know that sometimes the book that wins is a beloved book, but it's it might be a book that didn't have anyone who fiercely hated it because you know it's just sort of like it's complicated hmm. so it's it's great it's lovely it totally made my day to to be shortlisted for the dagger it's extremely happy simona any thoughts um yes of course because um this is my first international shortlist so um as a german author from hamburg you normally you know it's for me it's already an honor to be translated into English because I know how difficult the English market is and how difficult it is to be seen. And um, But the beautiful thing with being translated, um, yes, and now shortlisted, is that um, it means, it, it makes me traveling, it makes my book travel, mm -hmm. and it makes me traveling to festivals, and panels and um, sorry for getting political again but with this Brexit shit and everything um, we are neighbors in Hamburg we are so close to London like you know we have the same weather our weather is made in London so but we're not part of the same European Union anymore and I hate the idea that there's kind of a split between us and um, if my books are able to travel to an audience abroad, especially to an English-speaking audience. I feel like we're still linked and um, we can still learn from each other. How is your society working? How is our society working? Where are the cracks? All this. And um, what can we do to make it better in the future? It's all about, I think writing is dialogue. Art is dialogue. Um, it's about standing with each other, standing next to each other, understanding each other, talking to each other, listening to each other. And that's for me the most important thing in all this big complex. That was my speech, sorry. No, that's a great speech. And at, yeah, at a time when, when we can feel so disconnected and isolated through circumstances beyond our control, it is lovely that books and ideas and creativity can connect us across countries and continents and Boundaries, absolutely well said, Simona. Oh, God, I could talk to you guys for like, we could do a three-hour panel, but I think Danny would kind of have a fit at me if I do that. <laughs> so we may have to wrap it up very soon, I'm afraid, listeners. But what a what a wonderful lineup we have here with Tarek and Jacqueline and Simona and Laura. Perhaps just to finish off, 
Um, and actually, just before we finish off, I'd just like to say a shout out to Rachel Ward, who's Simona's um, translator, because oh, because um, although I've got to enjoy Simona's stories the last few years as an English speaking reader who only has a couple of words of German and they're probably swear words <laughs> is about all I have. Um, although it's Simona's stories I'm reading, it's Rachel's words on the page that I'm reading. So um, just a huge shout out to all the translators out there, Rachel who brings Simona's stories to us and all the translators who are bringing other people's stories, whether they're English language writers into other language or whether they're writers from other languages into the English language for those of us listening today. So yeah, thanks very much for that to all of you translators, you are awesome. Now, just to finish off, let's do a quick group around the table, so to speak. And I was thinking, why don't each of you let us know what you're working on now or, what, or what's next coming out from you perhaps. And maybe you could do, we can just do a quick fire thing of like, what's coming out next or what you're working on now and one or two books that you've really loved lately that you've read that you want to give a shout out to some other authors so i'm gonna forget the name of one i'm gonna look it up so yeah. terrible titles there <laughs> Tarek, we go Tarek, do you want to go first we can give laura time to look it up <laughs> uh sure so i am working on book three at the moment um called the midnight king although it's a kind of you know it's not been locked in yet or anything and it's still quite early days i'm still kind of in that nice period where it's a first draft and it's kind of, this is the best book ever and it's perfect. And I know I'm about 20,000 words in and another 20,000 words, I'm going to be like hating it. It's going to be the worst piece of crap anyone's ever seen in their life. So it's that, I mean, the nice points now and uh, I'm looking forward to getting it. The first draft's the hardest, I hate it. So once you get past that, it'll be great. And is um, that set in Cooper as well? No, it's set, it, well, it's connected. It's in the kind of Cooper verse. So it's a few yeah. characters crossover, but it's set in Nashville, this one. And oh. um uh, books I've read recently that I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed uh, Vine Street by Dom Nolan, which I read mm. recently, which is a brilliant kind of noir London set uh, book. And uh, I'm currently reading The Devil Takes You Home by Gabino Inglesias. Yeah, that's on awesome. my shelf. I think it was, it was you recommend, yeah, I think you maybe said it, but earlier I saw it and I thought, yeah, that's fantastic. And it's it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. Jacqueline, uh, what are you, you're working on book two. Can you tell us anything about that at this stage? And yeah, what are you I reading? Well, as I alluded to, I'm sort of battling um, battling book two at the moment. Um, I'm in a structural edit. We had a bit of a breakup, the book and I and the characters and I, when I got COVID and had a, a few weeks of um, away and came back and wanted to just sort of set fire to the, <laughs> set fire to the whole thing. Um, but I think that's um, just yeah if, you, yeah, if you're not scared, if you're not kind of um, nervous about what you're doing, um, as, as we've kind of talked about, then then maybe what's the point? So it, working title, has, we have all been here before, and it's set between Melbourne and a small town in New Zealand this time. I've been very brave and um, addressing um, some things from my childhood, which is perhaps what I'm struggling with. Um in terms of what I've been reading, I'm not reading much because I'm, uh, I don't want to, to be um, distracted from this task at hand. However, there's two debuts that I've really um, enjoyed. One, um, two Australian writers, Vicky um, Patrick, who normally writes, um, I, think, I think I just butchered her name, um, who normally writes nonfiction, but she's written uh, The Unbelieved. She's won the Ellen and Unwin Crime Fiction Prize, and I was lucky enough to read an, an advanced copy, and it's, it's wonderful, and I, I can see that um, there's going to be a, a lot more, um, I think, from her characters as, as well as from her um, 
as an author of fiction. And then Daughters of Eve by Nina Campbell was another one that I was lucky enough to read an early um, copy of. And that's just, yeah, just another um, a little bit subversive or actually probably overtly subversive that one is um, around um, some, some of the crime tropes we're familiar with. Fantastic. And Simone, uh, what are you, I mean, you've had a, another chastity book come out since Hotel Cartagena with Riv, the River, River Clyde. I, River I'm Clyde, not, yeah, River set, Clyde. In, set in Glasgow. Yeah, yeah, set in Scotland. You're taking chastity yeah. overseas. So, um, but what do you, you can either tell us about that book if you'd like or the one you're working on now. And, um, and what are you reading? Um, I just delivered two weeks ago the final draft of uh, a novel. Uh, not a crime novel, but more like a mystery, maybe, a utopia. It's set on the northern Atlantic and on a ferry, a flying Dutchman. And um, the ferry is already sailing, I think you say, um, since 1938. And there's an immortal crew and a 130-year-old captain. And then at people and everything goes wrong, of course. Um, so for me at the moment, it's all about water. I, I, I was a lot into water and um, that's why I'm reading at the moment, um, Leanne Shepton, a Canadian author and artist. And uh, the book is called Swimming Studies. And she was a swimmer when she was young and she, yeah, she, she, she writes about mindset and everything that comes together when you're swimming and as I am swimming every morning my two kilometers um this is my it's my world is full of water at the moment so it's, yeah. and circling back to you Laura I mean do you want to tell I, us about the book you're working yeah. on or perhaps you'd like to tell us about the uh, tv series you've been working on lately well I don't really work on the tv series I just like <laughs> You know, they're here. They've started filming um, Lady in the Lake with Natalie Portman. They're going to be here all summer. Um, it's, you know, it's very exciting. And I was, you know, I've had one other work adapted, but this is, feels bigger by a certain margin. And it, you know, it's, it's just lovely. And they've been great to me. So I am in the, I'm about to have a book go into copy editing. I'm doing really fine notes right this week. And this is a book that was inspired by a podcast. Um, and it's about the phenomenon, I think largely American, in which a girl who no one knows is pregnant has a baby mm. and that baby doesn't survive the delivery. And sometimes that's a homicide and sometimes it's not. And the podcast that I got the idea from, they actually called it Prom Mom. Oh, and, yes. Know, this please. idea of, um, it was, um, what's the, it's called You're Wrong About. And You're Wrong About is a podcast. At the time, it was hosted by Sarah Marshall and Michael Hobbs. It's now just Sarah. And Sarah ended up becoming a friend, just sort of independent of all of this during the pandemic. So Prom Mom is almost done. I said earlier in the pod, earlier in this interview that three really difficult people that I've spent my last 18 months with and I'm glad to see them go. So the book that I blanked on the title and I loved it so much, I read it earlier this year, it's called Mouth to Mouth by Antoine Wilson. This is a very Highsmith-like book oh. where two old friends are on a delay and they 
go to the lounge in JFK airport in New York and one begins telling the other a story. And it's very slender book, you read it very quickly. And the scale is really small. You know, it's not, it, it, it's, it's so good. I don't wanna say more about that. I'm also, and I'll, I'll you know, say in full, you know, in, what's the way you see you said, you know, I have to make clear my conflict of interest. This is a book written by a very good friend, but it's also a terrific book, nonfiction. Scoundrel by Sarah Weinman is so good. And it's the story of what happened when the American conservative William F. Buckley became convinced that a man who was in prison for the murder of a teenage girl was innocent. And he got him out and he tried to kill another woman. <laughs> but Sarah is doing something so brilliant with her nonfiction, which is she's taking these stories and censuring them in female experience. You know, she also mm. wrote a book about the real life inspiration for Lolita, which was terrific. And in this book, she's much more interested in the girl who was killed, the wife of the man who was convicted, the female editor who worked with this convict while he was working on a book that helped get him, you know, became part of his release. Just, just terrific books. So those, those are two I'll throw out there that I think are pretty great. Fantastic. Well, an amazing list of books there for all of you listening to check out. And I will, of course, just reiterate, you really want to go get the four books from the authors here. Uh, so that's Welcome to Cooper by Tarek Ashkenani, uh, Before You Knew My Name by Jacqueline Bublitz, Hotel Cartagena by Simona Buchholz, translated by Rachel Ward, and Dream Girl by Laura Lippmann. You can't go wrong with any of these books. They're all great. And they all show that how crime fiction can be great in a variety of ways. They're very different books sharing one thing. They're all very, very good. And they're all dagger shortlistees. Thank you so much to my panel. Thank you to you, all of you for listening. Ka kitiano. We will see you next.